When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Here I am, uh, a 70-year-old physician. I've been in practice for all practical purposes 40 years. So I think to myself, what have I learned and what can I pass on that might be useful? Many people will leave a doctor's office feeling there's been no connection. But what I've learned is if you make an honest attempt, not some phony attempt, but if you're actually struggling, working to understand a person, it goes much better. You, you actually can help them. Dr. Carl Van Devender is a physician in Nashville, Tennessee, and he's one of the most empathic doctors I've ever met. Actually, he's one of the most empathic people I've ever known. Carl seemed like the perfect person to talk with in our second show in this special series on the role of empathy in medicine. We got together in our studio in Manhattan. I wanted to talk to you about the way you talk to patients. It's really unusual in this day and age. For one thing, the time you're able to spend is different from what most doctors are able to do now. How, how long can a doctor spend with a patient usually? It depends on the field, but most people who do what I do, which is so-called primary care, I'm a general internal medicine doctor for adults, and I would say most um, physicians in today's climate are in the room with the patient for a 12 to 15 minutes. 12 to 15 minutes? Yes, and unfortunately, um, much of that time is spent at a computer, filling out uh, a computer form to document a, a visit, or as they call it, an encounter, uh, so that they can get paid. And I hear increasingly that when the doctor is at the computer, the computer is up against the wall and the doctor's back is to the patient. So the time they spend face-to-face is even less than 12 minutes. Yes, uh, it's, it's very unfortunate. But let's just think about um, why a person goes to see the doctor. They go, uh, first of all, uh, because they might have a problem. 
that they want to have some sort of connection and some sort of uh, connection that allows for someone to understand the bigger picture of what's going on with them. For example, if a person has a headache, it's usually not because they were just uh, hit in the head. It's usually uh, <laughs> because of something much larger than that. It might be some sort of stress or some sort of other illness. Uh, and it, it, if you are filling in a blank, person has headache, location, occipital region, you really haven't helped that person. You filled out a form, but you haven't understood what's going on with them. Um, I tell the young doctors that most of our patients did not go to medical school. And so for the most part, they don't know if we know what we're doing, but they're world-class experts on whether or not we care. And through you, Alan, and your improvisational technique, I've had a chance to think about the word empathy. And I have to confess, and I think you implied this when I first met you, that when empathy sort of came into vogue, um, I wasn't that impressed with the word empathy. I, I thought sympathy was a was a final word, and we didn't need to give it up. Yeah, I had the same feeling. I was mistrustful of the word empathy for a long time. But I've um, I've come to see this that sympathy is feeling for someone, empathy is feeling with someone. Mm. Yeah, I, but to be a feeling with that's that's the way it's often described that you are able to, and I think historically it came about through. Uh, a picture of somebody understanding what the other person is going through. Right. So here I am, uh, a 70-year-old physician. I've been in practice for all practical purposes 40 years. And um, so I think to myself, um, what have I learned and what can I pass on that might be useful? And I've had a hard time putting that into any concrete uh, form until I had the good fortune of meeting you and learning about what you're doing. And uh, I'd like to share with you, as I've done before, and if it's okay, I'll share it with you now again. Uh, when I first came into practice, uh, I had this wonderful older mentor who said that it was easy to sort of make a diagnosis and give a treatment, but the challenge was to look at four factors that go into any attempt to help another human being in their, in their illness, shall we say. One is the idea of dignity. The second is the concept of suffering. The third is the patient's independence. And the fourth is the patient's feeling of being a burden to, to their family or to society. Mm -hmm. And so I struggled for a long time with how do you convey to someone that you honor their dignity? So let me hear those four again. Dignity. Suffering. Suffering. Independence. independence and dependence. And dependence. Dependence. In other words, their dependence on on those taking care of them, their family and society, or to right. put it another way, their fear or feeling of, of burdensomeness. Uh, why the, the, the doctor who, who was helping you with these concepts, yes. trying to get you to be more in touch with the patients, why do you suppose he landed on those four factors? Well, it was at the end of his career when he imparted this to me. He was he himself was, in fact, 72 years old. I was taking over his practice. And he, had, he was a remarkable uh, man, someone I really looked up to. And um, I don't know how he came to those during his life as a physician, but he had it boiled down to, to those four 
So dignity meant uh, expressing uh, your understanding of the person's dignity? Well, let's think about the word dignity a little bit. You know, dignity and respect are quite different. Respect is something you earn. Dignity is something you have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we hear about uh, humanism coming along during the Age of Enlightenment. And, um, you know, you think, well, that's good. And then you start realizing that it was actually a, a, a very important transition in the psyche, if you will, of, of our civilization. Prior to that, there were actual homo sapiens, people, who were regarded as less than human. They were mm. slaves or they mm. were untouchables or whatever you want to call them. And so during the um, Enlightenment, uh, mankind started seeing us all as having uh, inalienable qualities, one of which was dignity. So in, in medicine, we're often called upon to take care of normal citizens, shall we say, but also prisoners who've done pretty bad things, murderers and so forth. So how do you, um, how do you convey that you recognize their inherent human dignity and recognize it as a part of the care of the patient? And so through your organization, I learned about reading emotions. Mm. So, you know, most uh, uh, prior to that, if someone said to me, what's, uh, what's the emotion I'm reading on this man's face right now? I had a very limited vocabulary, you know, sort of happy, sad, bored. Yeah, but, that's that, when I started trying to do it, that's all I had, yeah. too. <laughs> but, kind of, you you I, suddenly realize you, you don't have a, a vocabulary. You can describe wine better than you can describe right. what's on somebody's face. So uh, as I've shared with you before, I made a study of this and found various ways to increase my vocabulary. And so uh, I was giving a talk recently, and I was talking about your method, and I was saying that in the act of attempting to understand through reading another person's countenance what's going on in their head, trying to get inside them, or to, to put it another way, to increase empathy for them or with them, people subconsciously recognize that you're trying to do that and they let down their guards. They mm. all of a sudden want to be in that relationship with you. And it's an intimate look you give somebody when exactly. you're trying to figure out what they're feeling. And that look possibly triggers an openness on the person that you're looking at because, because it's, it's unguarded and that might help them be unguarded too. And then suddenly you're in a connection that's powerful. Well, that's the whole key, the connection. Uh, many people will leave a doctor's office feeling there's been no connection. Mm. Leave many relationships in life feeling there's been no connection. Yeah. But what I've learned is if you make an honest attempt, not some phony attempt, but if you're actually struggling, working, to understand a person, it goes much better. You you actually can help them. And so I was giving this talk, and after the talk, uh, uh, two women came up to me, both from Southeast Asia. They had not been sitting together, one from Cambodia and one, I believe, from Vietnam. And they told me that in their particular languages, the verb to understand and the verb to love are the same. Huh. And so I like to think that in our interaction with those who are trying to help, that there would be an element of affection, something akin to love. I met um, an older physician in the grocery store recently, and he'd retired, and I inherited some of his patients. And I said to him, I always enjoy seeing your former patients, and you know they loved you very much. And he looked at me and he said, well, 
You know, I love them too. Uh, and it's, it was refreshing to, to hear that. I always have been amazed at the responsibility that doctors take for the well-being, for the life of a patient. And that, that willingness to take on that responsibility can be seen as a kind of love, or it could be seen as, I've got this sack of potatoes, I have to get off the floor and in the back <laughs> well, of the truck. Well, there's no question that there's that too, that it is a, a burden, yeah. but what in life isn't Yeah, that's meaningful? So the suffering is well, the, be aware of their suffering or reduce it, or what? what's the significance of that? Well, suffering is not pain. Suffering uh, is quite distinct. It's one's response to a situation. People uh, don't just come in with <laughs> – someone's not just a kidney infection or a pneumonia. Right, right. They're a person, and they, they have a, a, an illness within a context. And in my opinion – Becoming aware of the context and letting someone tell you about the context is acknowledging their suffering. And I can tell you right now, I could take you, you could take me, we could take anyone we run into on the street, sit down quietly, and you will not find anyone who doesn't have some degree of suffering going on in their life at this very moment. If you think about it, what is the Old Testament about? It is about the suffering of the people of Israel. What is Buddhism about? Buddhism is nothing more than learning how to bear up under suffering and to put it in perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Jesus, the suffering servant. So suffering is an inherent quality, just like dignity, in my opinion. And a part of our obligation to our patients is to help put that suffering in a perspective that is both uh, palatable and to make it uh, more understandable. And I think that's where storytelling comes in. Storytelling, why? Why does it come in there? Well, if you go in and tell someone you, you've got uh, adenocarcinoma of the putamen, <laughs> <laughs> yes. which yes, is part of the brain. Uh, that could land really, on me really well. <laughs> you haven't told them anything. But if you can create a, a, a palatable, understandable story about uh, their illness that will allow them to to understand it, you will, in, in large part, uh, address their suffering. So much of suffering is dealing with the unknown. So the suffering is not so much the condition itself or the pain you get from the condition, but the burden it is to you psychically. And spiritually. And, yeah. And, uh, yes. And what about independence? What And what about the difference between independence and dependence? Okay. Well, in the old days, when I started out, a doctor might come in and say, well, Miss Smith, uh, you've got cancer of the whatever, and we're going to give you three rounds of chemotherapy followed by surgery and radiation therapy. And the person might say, well, doctor, I'm uh, 90 years old, and I'm not willing, I'm not prepared to go through that. In the old days, doctors might say, well, look, I'm the doctor, you're the patient, it's my way or the highway. Mm -hmm. But we are now encouraging a partnership, you know, these are the things that we have to offer. How do you feel about it? What mm -hmm. What are you willing to bring to this? And studies now show that if a patient feels a partnership with the treating team, things go much better. Their uh, ability to get better, whatever that means, physically or mentally, uh, is greatly improved by feeling a part of a partnership. And on dependence, you know, if you if you're, uh, say, a 70-year-old doctor, which I am, and you have a medical problem, which I did, and you're taken to the coronary angiogram suite to have your heart looked at, which I did recently, I was not worried about 
the die going through my system or the possibility that I would die from that. I was uh, worried about the burden it was to my wife to have to stop her day, come over to the hospital and see me, my friends who had a busy schedule, you know, the doctors having to stop what they were doing to fool around with me and uh, the impact it would have on my patients. I was worried about being a burden to others. I was not primarily worried about my condition. And so now on my rounds, if I go and sit down and hold someone's wrist or hand and say, are you concerned about being a burden? It is literally like puncturing a boil. Mm. It's what comes forth is, yes, I'm so worried that my daughter who lives in California and we live in Tennessee is going to have to stop what she's doing and come look after me now that my leg is broken or, or whatever. And we have not done a good job of allowing people to express the concern about burdensomeness in illness. And I think it's very important. Carl is able to relate to his patients at an unusually deep level, probably because he's established a connection with them from the very first visit. It's an unusual first visit. In fact, it's almost unheard of. Carl tells me about it right after this. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Dr. Carl Van Devender. This attention to the other person, the attention to the patient as a person, just seems something so much diminishing in our our world because the world is sweeping past us. And you talked before about the 12 to 15 minutes a, a doctor typically spends with a patient. When you have a new patient... How much time do you spend with the patient? <laughs> well, I'm an older doctor, and I see uh, when I see a new patient, I set aside four hours, and I use a blackboard, and I use a timeline of their life starting at at, at their moment of conception, actually, because I need to know a lot about the, the, the pregnancy that their mother had. Hmm. And what I have found is if we go, and I invite them to bring as many people as they can with them, their mother, oh. their sister, their huh. best friend, spouse, children, and we go through the whole timeline. And usually there's a moment when in their mind they became an unwell person or they developed yeah. a problem that needs to be addressed. But I've also found that if you write down every word they're saying in their presence, they get the idea that you're actually listening I mean, it's just you, the chalk, and the blackboard, and the patient. 
Yeah. And then you uh, attempt to put it into a narrative form. And this is the old-fashioned way of doing it, but there are certain doctors. There's Abraham Verghese who wrote the book Cutting for Stone. Mm-hmm. Have you met him? No, no. Well, he would be someone you might consider meeting. He's the head of medicine at Stanford University. In other words, he's, a, he's not a he's not a uh, insignificant person in the medical world. And he has something called the School of Narrative Medicine. In fact, it's taught right here in New York, one of the branches at, at Columbia. And it's taught in Philadelphia and in California and in Chicago. And I actually uh, teach it uh, in Nashville. And it's primarily for doctors who are willing to make the, you might say, financial sacrifice because you only charge the same that you would charge for a 15-minute mm-hmm. visit. Uh, and I think older doctors can offer that as a service to younger doctors to take a really comprehensive history and do a comprehensive physical for their younger doctors who may not have the time. Often they'll say, uh, could you see this patient who's really complicated and needs more time than my schedule will allow? And it's, it's a great honor, and it's, it's really a lot of fun. Is the idea of narrative medicine what you described before about getting the story, the life story of the person? Well, what you do instead of filling in the blanks like headache, yes, no, arm ache, yes, no, foot ache, yes, no, you actually write it out in, in a narrative story in paragraph form, whole sentences, uh, and uh, they can be anywhere from 10 to 40 pages. And then you give it to the patient and to their family if they choose, and they get a red pencil and mark it up because some of it may have come out not quite right and or they can add to it. And they finally have up to that point in their life what I would call a pretty comprehensive history, and they can carry it with them uh, wherever they go from that point forward, seeing other physicians. If a patient of mine wants to be referred to a center such as, say, the Mayo Clinic or Johns Hopkins, uh, I will do a narrative for them to take with them so that another doctor can read a story about them. And they get to participate in the the construction of that story, so they've really invested in their own storytelling. In the beginning, you, I say this is a story of this person's Ill, of medical life as told by, uh-huh. it might be the patient or the patient and their mother and two sisters and grandmother, all who are there. <laughs> so the, the, uh, the physician who, who you refer them to gets the benefit of a, of a more three-dimensional picture of the person than, than he or she would get if all they got was answers to the checkbox questions. Yes, that's correct. Um, and some of these checkbox questions um, have had an unintended consequence, and that is physician burnout. A recent study by the American Medical Association showed that fully two-thirds of primary care physicians regard themselves as burned out. Two-thirds? Two-thirds. And it's because so much of the filling in the blanks seems meaningless. Hmm. Uh, for example, I have a patient who was born with many birth defects, who's born blind and uh, many other problems. And... Um, um, I got a, a form from the insurance company, and, it's, and it was um, it said, when did this person last appear to be blue? In other blue? Words, what did they mean s- by s- that? Slightly sad. Oh, well, I see. Document the date and what you did about it. And the very next question was, when was the last time this patient expressed that they might be depressed? <laughs> <laughs> what was the date and what did you do about it? And the point of that is it, it seems silly Uh to, to be asking that question because who's going to do anything about that? Uh, what, who's going to read that? What, what is yes. the sense of it? Yes. Or have you talked to the patient about loose rugs in their home? Uh, have you talked about pointed uh, 
corners to the tables where they might fall. Well, that's important, but is it what we do? It, it, it seems to, to take away any of the personhood of the person you're talking about because everybody has a story. Everybody has a life experience that has texture and meaning to them. Yeah, and not just a story, but a really important and interesting story. Um, my, my wife, as you know, is a writer, and she writes about fictional people. But I can promise you on any given day, I see people with stories that are, that are unbelievably interesting. Uh, just this week, I saw a new patient who, at the at as a tiny baby, I think age one week, was diagnosed with TB and spent the first eighteen years of his life in a TB sanatorium, and his family was poor and could only come see him two or three times a year, and he. Uh, was in a full body cast for the first six years of his life. It had a, a little, like a suitcase handle on the side of it. They would carry him around and prop him up here and prop him up there. Mm. <laughs> and, and you know, that's those are people who are alive today. And to have him, you know, tell his life story is extraordinary. You remind me that I was told by a, a historian of medicine that doctors pretty much only had placebos and bedside manner until about 100 years ago, with the exception maybe of aspirin and maybe one or two other actual medications, the attention to the patient as a person was probably hugely important. And, and we called it bedside manner, but it was probably medicine in action. We need to remember that the human uh, organism has a great defense mechanism in it. I mean, most Viruses and infections will do just fine without all the intervention we do today. I think antibiotics are overused. I'd like to see less of that and more of uh, the old-fashioned uh, bedside okay. manner. Narrative medicine, as you practice it, hearing the story of the person from birth until now and that, that procedure you go through with a new patient— contacting the patient like that. Have you ever found that it's actually changed the course of treatment you gave the person? Let me tell you at least one story. So um, a prominent citizen in our state, in fact, it was the one of the governors, called me and said that he had a, a colleague who appeared to be dying. And she'd been to two uh, medical facilities for diagnosis, and no diagnosis had been forthcoming. And would I see her and do one of these, uh, what we call chalkboard interviews? So this lady who was 52 years old came with her sister, who was slightly older, her daughter, who was in her 20s, her mother, and her grandmother, who happened to be in a wheelchair. And she, her main complaint was that she had intractable vomiting and uh, was losing weight and just unable to function. So it took this long history, and she'd been at hospitalized for seven days at one place, 10 days at another, had all these fancy tests and uh, had all the records. And so we filled the blackboard with all the um, things she had to say. And um, then I decided it was time to examine her. So I asked my nurse to take her to an exam room so that I could examine her. And I came back into the room where we were taking the history. And the grandmother, who was in a wheelchair, said, Dr. Van Devender, I don't mean to be presumptuous. She said, in fact... I can't. Um, I never went to school, and I'm certainly not medically educated. 
but I hate to ask you, that pregnancy test up there, was that a urine test or a blood test? I said, well, let me look and see. It was a urine test. She said, I think that girl's pregnant. Well, guess what? She was pregnant. And so she wasn't dying. She was just pregnant late in life and having uh, nausea and vomiting from pregnancy. So did it change the course? I think so. (laughs) 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 And one more, if I may. So uh, another woman came in, and she had everything in the book wrong with her. I mean, you name it, she had, do you have headaches? Yes. Do you have chest pain? Yes. Do you have shortness of breath? Yes. Do you have change in bowel habit? Yes. Has your urinating changed? Do you Have you had rashes? Yes. And so I had gone through all of this and really couldn't figure out what was wrong with this woman. But I asked her if she would come with her twin sister the next time, her identical twin sister. And so they sat there, and uh, it was clear that they were having a spat. (laughs) Yes. And so I said, what's the problem? And my patient said, nothing. And the sister said, well, if you don't tell him, I will. And I said, "Uh, please tell me. And she said, you have right up there on the blackboard the date that all this started. Is that correct? And I said, that's the date she told me. She said, do you know what else happened on that date? And I said, I do not. She said, I won the lottery and she didn't. <laughs> so so what, what, how did that change to cure your butter or a lottery ticket or what? <laughs> no, I, uh, I think we had an opportunity to discuss uh, how this had been very upsetting right. to this woman who was quite poor. And her sister, uh-huh. who had also been quite poor, was also very wealthy. And I think it had uh, affected her in ways that became uh, physical manifestations of, I don't know what, jealousy or resentment or, or whatever. It's so interesting. You, you wouldn't find that on a checklist. It was not on the review of systems checklist. Did That's sister so great. The, the pl- lottery. Let, let me ask you our seven quick questions. Yes. And if you have the nerve to go through it with right. seven quick answers, it would be just really fun. What do, you, what do you wish you really understood? Lately I've been reading uh, Nietzsche's uh, Zarathustra which is, you know, talks about Zoroaster, who was lived around 3000 BC and is considered to be, if you look at it carefully, the, the father of virtually all religions on earth. At any rate, I wish I understood why it appears that most human beings have a propensity to posit or make up a god. I wish I understood where that came from. Uh, very interesting. What do you wish other people understood about you? I wish I had, uh, I wish people could perhaps understand that I care about them when often it doesn't seem that they think I care about them. (laughs) (laughs) What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? You know, we live in the Bible Belt, and um, at least once a week, somebody asks me if I have a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. Hmm. And uh, I really find that difficult. I want to say, well, you'd have to, you know, the relationship takes two to tango and you'd have to ask Jesus first. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you want, to, you want to answer it in a very respectful way. Yeah. And you also want to be honest. Yeah. And I find that hard. Yeah. How do you stop a compulsive talker? I have a lot of compulsive talkers who are my patients. Hmm. And from time to time, I will stop them and say, you know, this is extremely interesting. And I'd be grateful if you would flesh this out a little bit more in, in the form of a letter so we could look at it together. Oh, that's, I never and, heard that one. That's and, good. Um, and rarely do I get that letter. Right, right. Sure, they don't want to listen to it. <laughs> what, um, is there anyone 
for whom you just can't feel any empathy? No. Uh, even um, dreadful people, dreadful, highly deranged people, um, have in their um, essence uh, some element of humanity. And I, uh, I came to that realization working in a hospital called Whitfield for the criminally insane mm. down in Mississippi. And you know, I met a mentally ill man who had murdered many, many people, uh, but he was mentally ill. And on the one hand, uh, he seemed to have left his humanity, but on the other hand, I don't think he had left it completely. Um, I don't. I, I think he had a, a chemical imbalance in his brain that was perhaps correctable. So, it's great that you seem to have an ability to find that shred of humanity in the other person that you can connect with. Well, part of it is self-interest. I'm hoping others might someday find it in me. <laughs> <laughs> How do you like to deliver bad news, in person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? Well, as a physician, I give a lot of uh, unwanted news, for sure. Uh, you know, you have something for which there's no cure or something of that sort. Um, and I think, of course, the best ideal way, 99% uh, of the time, is in person, face-to-face, -face, um, and to be completely transparent. I think mm -hmm. you do a person more harm than good by trying to uh, uh, hide the facts. Right. So what, if anything, our last question, what, if anything, would make you end a friendship? I am, I am absolutely incapable of ending a friendship. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, I, and some people find fault in that part of my personhood. But often I feel that the thing that appears to be the factor that would end a friendship is really just a misunderstanding or something that can be worked out. And I think when you give up on that, you're really flying in the face of some basic concepts such as atonement, which I think is a very important part of the fabric of our, of our humanity. Mm. Well, you're my friend, and it's good to know that you'll never give up on that. <laughs> Thank you, Carl. I feel the same way, Alan. Thank you. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. Carl Van Devender's admirable approach to medicine helps make him such a sought-after surgeon in Nashville. And it's interesting that Carl studied English literature and linguistic philosophy before becoming a surgeon. So I guess it's not surprising that he's dedicated to reintroducing the humanities into medicine. He's a much-loved doctor. In Carl's honor, TriStar Centennial Medical Center in Nashville recently created the Carl Van Devender Clinical Pearls series. It's a lecture series where lecture topics include the most cutting-edge advancements and new care delivery methods in cardiovascular care. This episode was produced by Graham Shedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, our tech guru is Allison Costin, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, 
or wherever you like to listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. In our next conversation on Clear and Vivid, we'll be wrapping up our three-part series of shows on doctor-patient communication. I'll be talking with two very different kinds of doctors who collaborate on an innovative program that helps physicians communicate better with patients and with each other. As you can imagine, this program is dear to my heart because it grew directly out of the work we do with the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. My guests are the director of the Alda Center, Laura Lindenfeld, and the head of the center's medical division, Shushmita Pati. And they both realized how valuable improv training can be by doing it. Improvisation is at the core of their work with doctors and nurses, like all of the work we do at the center. Improv might seem like an odd thing to ask doctors to do. Well, I can tell you, I think I got rejuvenated. I'm connecting much more personally with my patients than I was. You know what improv does, too? Thinking as you're talking, it makes you want to connect because it makes you curious. And it's fun to connect. It is. It is. It feels good. Helping medical teams connect with their patients and with each other. Next time on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these conversations, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support so you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.